Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. Uh, good to be back with you this evening. I know I didn't miss Explore. It feels weird because I missed every other broadcast that I do last week, except for Exploring the Lord of the Rings. So I feel like I've been gone, but of course, here I haven't been. Um, but good to be good to be here on Crick Hollow. Good to be uh, to see you guys again as we continue our methodical journey through Book two, chapter one. Okay, so which, first of all, um, okay, or actually, before I start, announcements as usual, there, there are not very many announcements this week. Uh, just a couple quick things. First, uh, to note, we, I, I've been announcing we were going we're gonna to have um, the next session of the Mythgard Movie Club uh, this week on Thursday, where we were going to talk about uh, Camelot, the musical, uh, but we, we have to postpone that. We're going to still do it. But we can't do that this week. Um, we've had one of the organizers had a death in the family and isn't able to be there, so we're just gonna we're just gonna postpone that until later on. So stay tuned for when that's gonna happen later on. Um, but it won't be this Thursday. That we know for sure. Second thing uh, is we are approaching. We're in the last fortnight now for registration for Mythmoot. So I've been seeing a few more registrations coming in over the last couple of days, which is great. We still have some room. Uh, there's a really, really wonderful crowd of people as always coming to Mythmoot. It figures to be a really wonderful time as always. So I hope that you'll be able to uh, you'll be able to come join us there. And don't forget, if you can't make it uh, to the uh, to Leesburg, Virginia. Uh, for Mythmoot, you can still join us virtually through our new Mootcast option. Uh, so please do look into that. That's all at uh, signumuniversity.org slash Mythmoot. You can find all of the information on those things. So anyway, lots of great things happening there. Uh, still hoping to do our reenactment of the flight to the Ford uh, there and the positioning of the riders and everything. Looking forward to working out the flight to the Ford at Mythmoot here. Um I'm kind of wondering, I'm not sure when on the schedule exactly we're going to do it and whether or not we might end up doing it. I'm like, are we going to do it in the middle of the night? Which could be cool. We always have a nice big crowd uh, out at the fire pits in the evening. So, uh, you know, it might be kind of uh, it might be kind of fun. We'll see. I'm not sure when it's going to happen, but it's totally going to happen. So anyhow, um, I am uh, I am looking forward to myth mood. All right. Now. Uh, to move back and I actually there's a, a, a bunch of really good uh, comments on the discussion board this week, uh, but I, I'm not going to bring any of them in uh, here, but I wanted to address uh, some a sort of broader question. Uh, and I thought I would bring you with a, a my favorite uh, visual adaptation, my favorite visual image of the uh, of the flood at the Ford of Bruinen. Uh, this is, of course, from Ted Naismith. Uh, you'll notice that, of course, although we get lots of shining white horses with shining white riders, uh, we don't get any boulders of any kind, right? The boulders are completely left out uh, from this image. So there's Ted Naismith's solution to the boulder dilemma. Um, anyway, um, exactly. Mudmore is just saying, where are the boulders? Exactly. That's that's the problem. Um, okay, so um, so the what I wanted to just address briefly. Uh, don't worry, I'm not going to talk about the boulders again. Although what I am going to talk about, I am going to talk briefly about talking about the boulders. I want to make sure everybody understands what I'm doing and why there are times 
right? When, when I, you know, we go slow enough under the best of circumstances. And there are times when I really linger on a passage and I want to make sure everybody understands why I'm doing that. Um, as I've, I've explained this before, but it's worth repeating. This read through of the Lord of the Rings that we're doing together has been something, this is like, well, I'd say a, a lifelong dream for me, except like this is never something I ever imagined doing. So it's not like I specifically imagined and dreamed of this kind of thing. But this really, uh, you know, as we have been doing it, it has come to fulfill a, uh, a, a, a great and longstanding desire of mine to go through the text and really try. I want my goal, my goal in this discussion is to emerge with an explanation, not the explanation, not I'm sure many people could come up with better explanations uh, and, and will at various points, but I want to come out of our discussions on every passage in the entire Lord of the Rings with an explanation for every single question that I have. I'm never going to get the chance to study this text more in depth than we're doing right now, right? It's now or never, so I'm going to do this, okay? So when I stop and pause, and I, there will be times, like I know many of you are not totally into the boulders discussion or didn't see what the issue was. Um, if you're not seeing what the issue was, then that's my fault. Just say that, and that's my fault. I need to explain a little bit more clearly what the issue is. Um, but I'm not, I'm not, I'm not generally, you know, I, I, a word, a verb that comes up a lot when we're, you know, looking really closely at the text is, is nitpicking. I certainly hope not to be merely picking nits. That's an unpleasant activity in the best of circumstances. Um, the goal is not that. The goal is to find a reading that satisfies uh, and to not only answer the questions, but in some cases figure out what the questions are. For me, the boulders discussion was very, very fruitful. And I hope that <laughs> some of you had sufficient patience to bear with me until the end of it, because what I felt came out at the end was something which was for me a brand new reading of this passage that had never occurred to me. If I hadn't been laboring over the question of are these spiritual or physical boulders, I would never have arrived uh, at two things, really. First, a, 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 a clearer understanding of what Gandalf is doing, you know, what he was describing doing in the flood scene. And secondly, and even more importantly, a little bit more of an insight into Gandalf's power as a whole. Like, what is Gandalf's magic and how does it work? Um, so that final reading that, you know, that was sort of settled on at the end about Gandalf augmenting the Loudwater um, of his sort of encouraging and uh, and empowering the spirit of the river, right? To increase the vigor of the flood and the strength of the flood, which led to uh, the rolling of many, you know, the rolling and grinding of large boulders because of the amplification of the flood, which Elrond commanded and then Gandalf augmented. That to me is a really satisfying reading. That really, really works for me. I'm still not opposed to the spiritual boulders reading. I, I'm, I would be fine with that, but actually I kind of like this better because it seems to me to fit. Um, the problem with the, uh, 
the idea of him having sort of basically imposed two different shapes. Like on the one hand, we've got the horses and riders. And on the other hand, we've got the boulders. If both of those are spiritual, if both of those are just kind of a sort of a spiritual power that is manifested upon the water. And, um, uh, but like in these two different ways, like why both, why those things? Like why, why, whereas it makes much more sense if, if we just see the one spiritual manifestation combined with, the effect of the spiritual augmentation of the river, that all makes a lot of sense to me, right? And helps me understand that, you know, Gandalf's role and Elrond's uh, role in the flood. But again, more importantly, a better understanding of Gandalf's power and what, you know, what Tolkien conceives of Gandalf doing here at this point. And then even bigger picture, a better understanding of how magic works in Tolkien's world. Um, Anyway, that's where I came to at the end of our Boulder discussion. And those are pretty awesome things. That was, again, it, that meant a lot to me to sort of figure that out. So when I linger on a passage, which, I'm, which I've done and I'm going to do again, right? I'm doing that because I'm not, if I'm not satisfied, right? If I'm not satisfied that we have a reading that makes sense, I'm either going to stay there until I figure it out, until we figure it out together, or I'm going to come back to it again and again until we figure it out, right? Because again, like that's, that's what I'm here for. And if sometimes I seem to take a really long time with that, I apologize. Uh, and this again is something I've said before, but this is really, you know, I could wish that, you know, every conclusion I drew, every reading I made of the text were something which just like immediately emerged and, you know, in like its luminous perfection as soon as I read the text. But, you know, uh, that's not how it works for me. Um, uh, you know, sometimes it's funny, you know, when people talk about like my Hobbit book or something like that, or my podcast, you know, sometimes a word that people often use are like, oh, thank you for your insights on the text. And I'm like, well, I'm glad that you think that I, that like what I said was insightful, but it always feels to me a little bit, um, like not quite the right word, right? It's not like exactly, it's not exactly like I have a flash of insight when I read the text. Occasionally it happens and it's super awesome when it does happen. Uh, I'm real super grateful when it happens, but it's not my normal mode. My normal mode is plodding through and fig and like putting things, looking at things from one angle and another angle until it finally makes sense, right? And sometimes I have to beat my head against it for a long time or chew on it for a really long time until I finally come to a place where I feel like, and then I, and then, you know, I put it in my Hobbit book and it sounds like an insight, luminous insight that I just came to, right? But that's not how it works behind the scenes. And in this program right you know in this uh, in this project that we're undertaking together this is not me presenting polished materials this is us working together uh behind the scenes right we're all behind the scenes here uh doing this and by the way this is something that i've been th i've mentioned this before i'll mention it again i do want to have a product from this i would love to package together and put forth and we're we're working on this actually i might come to you guys with uh with a proposal here about um, uh, uh, working on this a little bit more actively together. Uh, I would love to package it and then we can package it up and make it all sound like we all had these beautiful insights as we read through casually. Right. But 
but that's not what this process is going to be. So sometimes if it's a little painful, it's okay. Just like go in, come back or fast forward to the end of that episode. It's all good. I won't be offended. Uh, but this is, um, uh, I, 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 I hope, and thank you, uh, Green Great Dragon for, for saying that. I hope that you all find it rewarding in the end. And the other thing that I kind of, um, uh, in to myself sort of justify uh all of this with is that i am one of the things i'm still a literature professor at the end of the day you know that's kind of still what my genes are and one of the main things that i always tried to emphasize in class right when i'm teaching books it's cheap ultimately to just like have your own insights of the text and like deliver them as from on high, right? And be like, ah, come, let me cast light upon this text for you, my ignorant students, right? You can do that as a literature professor. And it's like, you know, whatever. There's some temptations to do that kind of thing. But um, that's never for me what has, what I have been most satisfied in as a teacher. What I like to do is to like help to show and to model the way of doing this, right? So not just, not to mystify, but to demystify the process of coming to these conclusions. So um, I hope you're able to follow along not only with my results, but with my process. And I'm going to have to ask for your indulgence because I aim to indulge <laughs> this process. Because as I said, I'm never doing this again. I'm not going to live long enough to do this a second time. Uh, and not only am I really enjoying the process of doing that, but I, it's not just that I have a bunch of questions that I am determined to find answers to. I'm discovering questions. Goodness knows, like I would never, ever have seen the boulders coming. Like there are things like like our discussion of Weathertop, like that blew my mind, right? I mean, I learned stuff about the attack on Weathertop I never thought I was going to learn when we began that discussion. Here, I never even thought this was here, right? I mean, uh, I never even would have imagined that discussing the rolling and grinding boulders would have led to anything, frankly, right? And here, you know, these really cool stuff, this really cool stuff has come from it. So... I'm enjoying myself. I'm learning a lot and I hope many of you are too. And if, you know, if it seems to drag, it's okay. It's all right. I won't be offended if you, if you have to go or take a nap or whatever, but this is what's happening. So Trish, exactly as you said before, I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry. Like this is, this is, this is what's going to happen and this is going to keep happening. So just be warned. Um, all right. Um, <laughs> okay oh yeah tony the reinterpretation of goldberry yeah that that was one of my top uh moments too um yes irindus's comment about the uh water lily still uh changed my view of goldberry forever I, again like i've learned so much from this discussion and i'm not going to stop it so um all right with that in mind let's keep going and i'm not going to talk about I'm not going to talk about the boulders anymore now. Um, and um, yeah, so um, let's. Um, there will be some, some people are bringing up uh, like things that we skipped or things that we missed. Right. We are going to have to go back and cover some things. So we'll see. We'll see, but that's later. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not, we're, we're, I'm not going to slow uh, our 
uh, already glacial pace through the text by taking whole classes and going back and covering things. Occasionally I'll go back in the question section at the beginning, but uh, not every time, of course. And maybe we have to, uh, maybe we have to figure out a system for later on going back and addressing some of the things that we didn't achieve closure on or things that we skipped entirely. Well, we'll see, right? We'll see what we can do later on. Anyhow. Um, yeah. Oh, Ambrogius Aurelianus, we're working on something like that. We're working on that. Um, like I said, I want to, um, the time has come now that we're, you know, way up in, in, uh, book two and, and of course over a hundred episodes now, uh, the time has come for us to begin compiling some things, um, that definitely should happen. And we're going to work on that. So, all right. With that in mind, let us rush forward to the text. Frodo just fell asleep and we're waking up and it's now day two in Rivendell, or at least day two of Frodo's consciousness. Frodo was now safe in the last homely house east of the sea. That house was, as Bilbo had long ago reported, a perfect house, whether you liked food or sleep or storytelling or singing or just sitting and thinking best or a pleasant or a pleasant mixture of them all. Merely to be there was a cure for weariness, fear, and sadness. As the evening drew on, Frodo woke up again, and he found that he no longer felt in need of rest or sleep, but had a mind for food and drink, and probably for singing and storytelling afterwards. He got out of bed and discovered that his arm was already nearly as useful again as it had ever been. He found laid ready clean garments of green cloth that fitted him excellently. Looking in a mirror, he was startled to see a much thinner reflection of himself than he remembered. It looked remarkably like the young nephew of Bilbo, who used to go tramping with his uncle in the Shire. But the eyes looked out at him thoughtfully. "'Yes, you have seen a thing or two since you last peeped out of a looking-glass,' he said to his reflection. "'But now for a merry meeting.' He stretched out his arms and whistled a tune. Okay. Um... Excellent. Okay. Um, interesting. Mary says when reading first reading this book, it was Rivendell I wanted to visit and still do. Yeah, I, I, I you've got to agree, right? I mean, Rivendell's got to be in one of the top five vacation spots, right? I mean, the way that Tolkien talks about Rivendell surely makes it sound like my ideal vacation, right? Where you go somewhere and the food is really good and it's really relaxing and there's like, you know, fun things to do if you want them, but no pressure. And oh man, sounds awesome to me. Um, anyway, um, Fourth Thoughtless is asking, is there any other instance of Tolkien directly quoting from The Hobbit? Some of the characters will quote from it, um, but I don't recall the narrator quoting from it in any other place. Um, that does make this a very interesting uh, passage, quoting Bilbo's long-ago report, right, of Rivendell. Um, the fact that... And it's an interesting move to make because... Uh, I mean, we'd probably we'd be thinking of it anyway, most likely, like, you know, referring back to the short rest of of uh, Bilbo and the dwarves in The Hobbit. But by not only alluding to the parallel between Frodo stopping here now and Bilbo stopping there before, but actually quoting the text. Right. He brings 
this episode, not just this chapter or this period of time in which the party is in Rivendell, but this moment, right? Um, this particular sequence uh, when Frodo is being reintroduced to everybody, right? Um, it puts this section in touch with The Hobbit in a much more direct way than we've seen everywhere that I can think of, right? Um, yeah. Um, so... Yeah, so Kralis is asking who's the narrator here in the first sentence or two. Um, I'm going to go with Frodo. I think this sounds like Frodo. Of course, either one, either Frodo or Sam, would quote Bilbo there, right? That's not surprising. But again, see, that's one of the things that makes it surprising. You'd think that there might be more uh, connections. Um Hmm. Tony, you're making me think here. So Tony says it's uh, it's a bit of what we might call fan service, right? Yes. Uh, and it harkens back to when this was a Hobbit sequel. Yes. But now, Tony, I'm suddenly doubting. Can somebody go see if we can find it? Can somebody go to the Return of the Shadow and look it up? See if in the early drafts of the beginning of the of the many meetings materials, um, was this there then? I mean, was this there when it was actually a Hobbit sequel and Tolkien was still thinking of it that way? I wonder. I can't remember for sure if it was. It might be, but I'm not sure it'd be interesting if it weren't, right? If this were something he added after it was already no longer just a Hobbit sequel, right? That would be especially fun, but I don't remember. Um, anyway, um, so... Let's think more about the implications of that. Why? Well, not why. Um, I have a sloppy habit of asking the question why. When I say, why does Tolkien connect us to the Hobbit here? It makes it sound like we're trying to put ourselves inside his head, right? And guess the reasons why he did things, which that's never what I mean when I ask that question. What I mean is, what is the, th this has happened, right? What is the effect of this having happened, right? Since we have, um, been brought very directly into contact with the Hobbit here. What is the consequences of that? What is the effect of that on the story here? Merely to be there was a cure for weariness, fear, and sadness. One thing that's interesting is that when we recall the passages from The Hobbit, when we go back to the chapter of The Hobbit, again, as this passage is forcibly compelling us to do by quoting it, um, that chapter was called a short rest, right? And yes, Bilbo was refreshed um, and they were, you know, the whole party was sort of fortified by their time, uh, not only by rest and food, but also by additional supplies and uh, by advice and uh, expert information, right? Um, this is where the sort of full... The inscription, the reading of the moon letters, right, by Elrond is a really big deal because that the moon letters themselves contain like the core prophecy, uh, which I say prophecy because it's not instructions, right? Um, the prediction that the thrush will knock and that the last light uh, of the setting sun on Durin's day will shine upon the keyhole. That's that's what's in the moon letters, right? And they learn that there. So 
um, we have rest, but also the unf- like the unfolding of, of I mean, it sounds super grandiose, right? Like the unfolding of their destiny. Um, it's not like they were chained. Their quest didn't change. Like they were headed to the mountain. They were still headed to the mountain afterwards. They, they've not been redirected at Rivendell, but the whole, the whole, the whole trip, right? The whole quest was kind of, I don't know, sort of recontextualized. I, I, I think the moon letters are kind of a big deal. When they leave Bag End, they're headed for the mountain. They have a, a goal, but they don't have a plan. They don't have a plan, and they frankly don't have much reason to believe that they're going to succeed in what they're attempting to do, right? Or at least no rational person could look at them, you know, the 14 of them, or 15 if you count Gandalf, at the end of chapter one of The Hobbit and say, oh yeah, you know, this is going to pan out, right? I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure they're going to be able to manage that. Um, I mean, that's just not likely. Um, things change with the moon letters, right? It's with, with the revelation of the moon letters, not only the content of the moon letters, but the coincidence of the revelation of the moon letters that Elrond happens to hold it up on the particular day when the moon is in the particular, on the date in which the moon is on the particular, uh, 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 phase that it's in. Like if it hadn't happened to be, you know, on midsummer with a crescent moon, when he held it up, then like they wouldn't have been revealed. Right. So again, there's, there's a sense in which their whole quest is kind of touched by destiny at Rivendell. All of these things that I'm saying right now, this is me trying to answer the question what did the visit to the house of Elrond, the visit to Rivendell, mean in The Hobbit? We're being put in, we're being reminded of that, right? We're being asked to sort of set Frodo's visit to Rivendell here alongside Bilbo's visit, right? So I'm trying to think what are the things that we might kind of be expecting, right? Um, yeah, Tony, see, exactly. Aragorn's broken primary weapon is still an upgrade uh, from no, the no weapons at all that the dwarves brought on their quest, right? So there you go. Um, anyway, so those are the two things, I guess, big picture I would point to when I look back at Chapter 3 of The Hobbit. Both the the, the sort of material uh, reinforcement and that's not the right word. Um, um, encouragement. Uh, you know, they, they've been bolstered, right? By the rest, by the food, by the supplies, um, by the guidance, by the advice. Uh, but they've also been kind of touched by destiny there. Uh, not quite for the first time, but uh, in the first and most dramatic way, right? Okay, so with that in mind... You know, we can kind of have that expectation, I think, to some extent. It seems to me fair to recall some of those things. Uh, We know, we already know, um, we have good reasons to know um, that um, Frodo is going to be coming to a point of destiny here in Rivendell, right? Um, From all the way back, um, from all the way back in Bag End, there was the question, he will bear the ring to Rivendell. 
That's the plan, right? His destination when he leaves the Shire is Rivendell. It's not a waypost, unlike Bilbo, right? Bilbo was headed to the mountain. Uh, well, Bilbo was headed to Bag End with the mountain on the way, and Rivendell was only a one-way stop along each direction of the trip, right? So, But for Frodo, Rivendell is his destination. But, of course, it's going to be in Rivendell where the decision is going to be made, right? Where his ultimate sort of destiny is going to be determined. Is he going to bear the ring on further? Gandalf raised that prospect back in Bag End, but it was not settled. But that, that, that task may be for others, he admitted, right? Or perhaps attempted to comfort Frodo uh, with the um, possibility of. Um, but And remember, of course, it was just coming up in their first conversation that we've been talking about for the last couple months, right? This prospect, this question of what is his relationship with the ring? Is he still going to be the ring bearer? What's going to happen? Remember Gandalf's sort of thoughts about what Frodo could become and what his destiny might be, right? It's a question that Gandalf is asking. What's going to what's going to come of Frodo? What's going to happen to Frodo? What is Frodo's destiny? Both in the sense of where is he headed, right? Is he is 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 this quest for him? Is he to be the ring bearer all the way to Mount Doom? Um or also, in, in another sense, like, what's going to happen to him? Is he going to be okay? Is he going to fall into evil? Is, is you know, um, remember, those are the questions that Gandalf himself was asking when he was looking at Frodo uh, carefully when uh, in that last conversation. So, um, uh, let's see. Um so in that way, I think we can kind of we can kind of see a parallel or again, we're sort of prepared for destiny to strike in some way. The, the destiny striking in The Hobbit is a little bit dramatic, but it's not um, sort of earth. It's not like this, right? It's not like a redirection of the entire of the entire uh, uh, journey here. Um, yeah, Tiber says he's trying to imagine uh, Frodo giving the ring up if another bearer had been chosen. Um, yeah, that'd be tough, right? Uh, maybe already impossible. I'm not sure, but it might be impossible. He could probably do it. Probably. Um, but he and the ring have already been through quite a bit, especially in the last month. Right. Uh, so yeah. Yeah. Um, I think, Hmm. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Fourth Dauntless says he definitely need help, but there's help around. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, I think that he could do it. Um, but either way, it's going to rock his world, right? Whether he takes the ring on or whether he doesn't. Um, yeah, Aragorn, I agree. It would be parallel to the difficulty that Bilbo had. Bilbo had it for a lot longer, but uh, the way in which the you know the I get the events of his journey have clearly had an impact. Remember, if our reading was correct last week, um Gandalf was concerned about that, right? That's what Gandalf was you know, doing a double take for when he was looking at Frodo, was to just to try to see how firmly does uh uh you know does the ring have its grip on him. He's noticed that you know the last few months since he last saw Frodo have already introduced a change in his relationship to the ring. And at least he fears that it might possibly even have done more. Right. Um, so Flamifer, that's why I would say it would be, it, I don't know that it'd be harder than for Bilbo, 
but I doubt it would be much less hard um, because the ring is grabbing him harder. Uh, remember as, um, uh, as Gandalf was suggesting, you know, Gandalf was suggesting that uh, the ring gets impatient, right? It wanted to leave Gollum. Um, and you kind of have to think that it was pretty well done with Bilbo, too. Um, the ring seems to be, uh, it's, it's, it, the temptations that Frodo has been experiencing, uh, with the ring have been regular and frequent, uh, during this journey. Um, it gives the impression anyway, that the ring is acting on him much more actively perhaps than it did with Bilbo. Um, and you're right, Belongsmond, he has had the ring for 17 years. Uh, so it's not like, you know, Bilbo had it for 60 years and Frodo's only had it for a month. It's a significant percentage of the amount of time that Bilbo had it. But again, I really think the last six months are more significant. Another reason, Flamifer, that I think shouldn't be overlooked, Frodo knows what it is, right? Um, when Frodo, if Frodo claims it for himself, if Frodo thinks about his own keeping of the ring and ownership of the ring his will is engaged with like what it, it actually is where it never was with bilbo right um he never knew um Flamifer, i do suspect that sauron seeking it more actively and exerting his own will has an impact as well that makes sense to me um i don't know i mean He's a long ways off, right? To what extent is his will operative on the ring itself? Gandalf's words suggest that it's possible, right? That it's possible that he, um, uh, that he is impacting it in some ways. Um, but, um, yeah, that seems, that seems possible. Um, anyway, um, it's true that Bilbo had it for over 60 years. But again, like the point is Frodo has had it almost a third as long as Bilbo already. Right. So again, it's not like he's only had it for six months and Bilbo had it for 60 years. Uh, the proportion is much, much closer to, uh, to even than that. Um, uh, so yeah, no, I mean, it's been, uh, uh, it's been a long time. Uh, no, Scooter, I think Bilbo only had it the 60 years, right? He, he got it when he was 50. And he gave it up when he was 71 um, uh, because it's it's been almost 80 years uh, since the Bilbo's journey. But Bilbo gave up the ring 17 years ago. Frodo's had it since then. So um, anyway. Um, yeah. No, we don't know exactly how often Bilbo wore the ring. We do know that he used it, but again, especially in his later years when there was less call for it, we know that Gollum didn't use it very often. Um, so there's reason to think that it's kind of tempting. You guys will remember, maybe you'll remember, that... Uh, when Peter Jackson and company were doing the Gollum sequence, um, you know, the Smeagol and Diego sequence and, and, and his, you know, the sort of the backstory of Gollum sequence at the beginning of the return of the King um, that, you know, in their commentaries and stuff, they were talking about 
parallels to things like heroin addiction, right? Um, and, you know, showing the sort of, you know, addictive spiral as Gollum goes down. And there are ways in which that's a really compelling parallel. And it is my suspicion, even before, I'm not saying influenced by that, I mean outside of that, it's my suspicion that many Tolkien readers kind of think of it in that way, um, as akin to uh, to a kind of addiction, right? Um, like maybe a drug addiction of some sort. But I think it's important to recall that there are many ways in which it's unlike that, right? Um, again, like one of the patterns of drug addiction is like more and more and more, you know, getting uh, getting hooked and going back to it more and more until you're high most of the time, right? Or as, as, as often as you can be. Um, and it's harder and harder. You go through harder and harder withdrawal, right? If you try to stop, if you try to, to not do it. That parallel would lead one to suggest that the relationship with the ring would mean like you'd have to have it, you'd have to wear it more and more often, it would demand to be worn more and more often, right? And you would have to go back to it and back to it uh, until in the end, um, you know, you were wearing it all the time and you were permanently invisible because you never took it off. But that's not the pattern that we see. That's not what happens to Gollum. We have no reason to think that's what happened to Bilbo either, right? Gollum used it less and less as time went on. So I'm not saying that the parallel totally doesn't work. I'm just saying it can be a little bit um, misleading, right? We have to be a little bit cautious with that parallel, I think. Um, so yeah, Belongsman said it's, it's, it's a, it's almost like a hoarding addiction. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I, that's interesting. Uh, trifle says it's more, more seduction, less addiction. Uh, perhaps, perhaps in some ways. Um, yeah, well, Scudo, I don't know, maybe, uh, I mean, the fact is we don't know anything about the sequence of the, uh, you know, Scudo's thinking about the, uh, that like the, the rings of power seem to operate on the, the nine rings of power seem to operate on their human victims, uh, in that way of, you know, wearing them until they're permanently invisible. Mm, we don't know that actually. We really don't. Um, we don't, um, we know almost nothing about the progress of the destruction of the ringwraiths. That would be on my short list of stories I would like to hear, right? Um, I really look forward when the Silmarillion film project gets around to the destruction of the Ulairi, right? Creation slash destruction of the, of the Ulairi. That'll be fun. Right. Um, and Maven's laughing. We already set it up, Maven, right? We're already thinking about it. When we did our, when we did our episode on Quivianen and the, and the, uh, aftermath of Quivianen and began to think about the, uh, you know, the sort of laying the foundation for the human societies out in the East of Middle Earth who are under Sauron's sway, right? We began to think about that. And, and anyway, but I, I think um, I think it, it's going to be really interesting to think about that. Um, uh, Tony, I'd be interested. Maybe they will. I would love to see them do it. I hope they don't do it in a hokey way, of course, but I, I, I really hope they have an opportunity, the Amazon folks, if they want to do that. But anyway, I, mean, I get too distracted going down that particular rabbit hole. But um, it's just to say we don't really know. Um, we don't have really the only evidence that we have of a person who is like 
coming under the sway of the rings of power it's really just bilbo and Gollum. even isildur is very um dubious uh um evidence because tolkien kind of changes the story about isildur we only get we get very little about isildur in the lord of the rings itself we get um a good deal more about isildur in unfinished tales um but that seems to be revisionist, which is fine. Like his idea of Isildur changed or developed, which is cool. Um, but um, anyway, um, uh, no, Flammifer the Ring does do something on Weathertop. Uh, it, uh, um, well, I don't know. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna go back to Weathertop right now. Um, but um, yeah. Yeah. Anyhow, okay. Tracing back my train of thought here uh, to Frodo and changing his destiny and whether or not he would give up the ring. That's where we got onto all this. Okay. All right. All right. Um, okay. Um, let's see. Yeah, uh, of course, Cecilia points out uh, Sam is a really interesting data point there, right? Sam feels reluctance to give up the ring, even though he's only had it for a very short amount of time, right? But you get the impression that the amount of hold that the ring already has on Sam is much greater than if somebody else had gotten the ring and had it for the number of hours that Sam had it, you know, back five years before. Right. Um, that is to say, I do think that the, uh, the effect of the ring on Sam, um, the increased effect of the ring on Sam, Cecilia, as you point out, does suggest to me evidence of how the ring is changing, right? We know the ring changes. We know that the effect of the ring changes both with proximity to Mordor uh, and with like the time as Sauron is putting forth his will more and more. Um, so for that reason alone, I think we have lots of reasons to think that it would be harder for Frodo to give up the ring now than it would have been for Bilbo to give it up at year 17. I, I think we have pretty good reason to believe that. Um, yeah. Anyway. Okay, so... Tony, we're getting to Frodo looking at himself in the mirror because this is our first reunion, right? The first in the series of reintroductions that Frodo gets when Frodo now post wounding, right? Post experience on the other side now comes back and is reintroduced into society, is reintroduced into his old world, right? Except it's it's not his old world. It's the last homely house. Um now, someone, and I've already forgotten who it was because it was ages ago. Okay, it was like 20 minutes ago, but still, um, I don't remember. Uh, pointed out the significant or the interest in calling it the last homely house east of the sea. Which, and again, you can double check. Somebody can double check this for me. I don't think it calls it that in The Hobbit. It's called the last homely house. And in the Hobbit context, it's pretty clear that that means when you are headed, uh, when you are headed east... Right. When you're going from the Shire, we're going through, you know, friendly lands to unfamiliar friendly lands to unfriendly lands to the wild. Right. 
Uh, and the last homely house is on the border of the wild. When you leave Rivendell and head east, you are in the wild, capital T, capital W, in The Hobbit, right? So it is in that sense that it's the last homely house, or when you're coming back home, it's the first homely house, right? It is your retransitioning into, um, into society, into friendliness, right? Into the tame world versus the wild, Um and again, that in that much more kind of simple linear geography that we get in The Hobbit, right? That's the role of The Last Homely House. By adding East of the Sea, um, that's, that changes it, I think, very significantly. The Last Homely House, East of the Sea. Suggests, that suggests to me... You know what that does to me? That completely changes the word last. Last was purely geographical, right? In The Hobbit. Like, as you're going east, it's the last... You'll meet some homely houses along the way, right? This is the last one you're going to meet in this direction, right? Um, Now, by calling it the last homely house east of the sea... Last seems to now be referring not to to geography, but to chronology, right? That is, in this age of the world, it is the last homely house. Homely in what sense? Again, in The Hobbit, homely in the sense of a house that is like home, that has at least all of the comforts of home, right? Um, which is homely instead of inhospitable and dangerous like the wild. Exactly, exactly. Um, Aragorn, that's just how I read it. Um, it's the last one left outside of Valinor, right? The other home, all the other homely places have been taken out of the world. East of the sea, so west of the sea, uh, you know, and down the lost road, there's, there's still homely houses there like Antolaresia and in Valinor, right? But here, east of the sea, there's only one homely house left, and that is Rivendell. That is Elrond's house, right? Um, Lothlorien is a baby brother, so, so what's what's Lothlorien chopped liver, right? Uh, yeah, it's not a homely house. Uh, first of all, as Lincoln points out, it's not a house, right? And that seems, uh, that seems uh, perfectly fair to say. Um... But I I would say more there, because uh, keep in mind, well, first of all, homely to whom? See again in the Hobbit, homely to Bilbo, right? Homely to people who for whom the Shire is their model, right? Um, of what homeliness is. If last means last in that sense, the last surviving homely house in Middle Earth the others all being west of the sea, right? That seems clearly to me to mean homely for elves, for the high elves, especially. Um, The last refuge for elves before they depart, right? Um, I'm torn here. A couple things. Um, I agree with a lot of... So a lot of you are talking about how 
Lothlorien is just different because it's not homely in that sense. It's 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 like entering another world. It's um, uh, it doesn't uh, you know as Fourth Donald was just saying, homeliness imp- implies welcome and comfort, which Lothlorien lacks. Um, uh, Mary was saying that it's uh, uh, you know in Lothlorien you don't so often have guests from the outside, right? So it's not homely in that sense. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I I hear all those distinctions, but I'm not sure I'm satisfied by those. If it's the last homely house east of the sea, it has to be for elves, doesn't it? I mean, doesn't that make that name now suddenly rather elf-centric, right? I mean, when it comes to homely houses, east of the sea, we're east of the sea. We're talking about all of Middle-earth. Chronologically speaking, it's not the last surviving homely house in all of Middle-earth, full stop. Right? I mean, Prancing Pony's pretty homely, right? Come on, Tom Bombadil's house is pretty homely. We've already hit a couple other homely houses, right? Um, there's lots of homely houses in Middle Earth, broadly speaking, right? That welcome travelers and that are homely and everything else. So there's no sense in which this could be called the last homely house east of the sea in a like mundane sense, right? Um, I think it's, uh, um, yeah, no, but Luke east of the sea. Um, yeah, those others are, 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 you know, west of Rivendell. Sure. But it doesn't say it's the easternmost of the last homely houses. Yeah. Again, in the Hobbit, that's how it works, right? We are on the line, right? We're on the line between the Hobbit and the Lonely Mountain, Right. And as you go east, it's the last homely house you come across. That's definitely the Hobbit sense of it here. Adding east of the sea to me totally changes that. Right. I can't read that as last homely house in that sense anymore, Um, because now it's putting it in this larger context. Right. East of the sea means Middle Earth. All of it. The whole thing. Middle Earth. Um, So. If it's the last homely house east of the sea, then it has to be meaning not to elves, not by elves for others. Because how does that make sense? I mean, I know it in a sense it would seem to fit Rivendell. I'm not denying that, but um, it's not like that's a thing, you know, like. Elves used to have homely houses all over the place, right? One of the things elves loved to do was, like, make welcoming houses for the other peoples, right? Elves used to be in the hospitality business. But, you know, now we're getting towards the end of the Third Age. There's only one of these elvish homely houses left, and that's Rivendell, right? That's not a thing. That doesn't make any sense at all, right? So, um, I... I, yeah, I don't, I, I, so 
the directional thing, the geographical thing, to be last in that sense, like this is the last ex, you know, this is the last, uh, uh, the last exit, you know, before, you know, whatever. Like that's, I can't see it in that in the Hobbit. Yes, here, no, not anymore. Um, so. So, in what sense is it the last homely house east of the sea? Um, Saying it's the last homely house east of the sea seems to me clearly to suggest that there are other homely houses west of the sea. Does that seem fair? That seems like a logical necessity, right? If there are other homely houses, if the that model, right, is, you know, so that at least the narrator here, Frodo or whoever, is imagining that in Toleresia there are other homely houses. Um, that, like, the majority of surviving homely houses in Arda are west of the sea, right? And that what you get at Rivendell is a glimpse or foretaste of that which is those homely houses to the west of the sea. Then that suggests that the other two really elvish places in Middle-earth, namely Lothlorien and the Grey Havens, are not homely houses in that same sense. Right? So, the Grey Havens, that's easy to me. Right? Because the Grey Havens, it's not a home at all. I mean, Kyrton lives there. I'm not saying that there aren't any elves who have taken up more or less, at least what would look to mortals like quite permanent residence uh, at the Grey Havens. But it's not a homely house, right? Um, it's a it's a it's a harbor, right? It's designed to be a harbor, right? So um, it is. Um, um, it's not. A homely house, right? It's uh, it's got a totally different function. So, so what about Lothlorien again? Why isn't Lothlorien a homely house east of the sea? And although it's not a house, I'm not sure getting it off on a technicality satisfies me completely. Um, see, Lilith, I don't think that homely in this sense, again, if we're saying that there are homely houses west of the sea, then I don't think it could be a term referencing their willingness to welcome outsiders. Because there's almost no examples of those homely houses west of the sea welcoming outsiders. It doesn't happen. Well, it will happen eventually, right? But there have been almost no documented cases of it beforehand. I say almost none. There is one really important one, right? Um, and that is Ariel, right? Alfwina, the Book of Lost Tales. Book of Lost Tales exists in a kind of parallel world to the Lord of the Rings to some extent, but um, we know that there are some concepts that Tolkien never left behind entirely. We do know that in Tolkien's imagination, let me put it this, let me say this a different way. Tolkien 
imagined what Toleresia is like in detail exactly once, right? There is only one time he ever wrote blocks of prose describing people walking around in Toleresia, interacting with other people, doing stuff, living in Toleresia, right? There's one time he did that, and that was in the Book of Lost Tales. And you know what? It was a pretty homely house, right? Um, uh, it was very like Rivendell in a lot of ways, actually. Um, it's not hard to look back and say that, um, uh, look back and say that that, you know, the, the, the house into which Ariel enters in the Book of Lost Tales um, is uh, almost like a precursor of Rivendell itself. Um, okay. So, because here's the thing. I mean, a lot of you guys are focused on accepting outsiders and stuff, but I'm not convinced that that's the crucial factor here. And here's why I'm not convinced of that. Again, in The Hobbit, that's true. But, but adding East of the Sea totally changes the concept in my mind. Totally changes it. Um, not only does it change to me completely the meaning of the word last, right? No longer last geographically, but last chronologically. The last survivor of the last homely house still to survive east of the sea is now how I read the word last there. Um, now that we're talking about all of Middle Earth. Um, but to me, it also suggests that we need to change the word homely as well. Because again, if there are homely houses west of the sea, there are not homely houses in the in that sense. Um, we can define homely house in The Hobbit as a house that is comforting and welcoming to visitors, right? When Bilbo visits, um, when Bilbo visits Rivendell, right? When he has his short rest, as we discussed, you know, a big part of what's happening there is he is... You know, he's being welcomed, right? He finds the house homely. I'm I, that doesn't seem to me make any sense anymore in the new context that East of the Sea places it in. The homely houses west of the sea are not for wayfarers of other races. That's not a concept, right? So if we draw the conclusion, which I have a hard time avoiding, that if it's the last one east of the sea, there's got to be some west of the sea, then there has to be a different concept. Homely. I think now has to we have to think about what that word means in the new context. And I think homely now begins to be connected in my mind to elven home, right? Rivendell perhaps is now the last homely house. Um if it's the last chronologically, right? Yes, Luke in the Hobbit, homely means hobbit friendly. I am not only am I not convinced it means that here, I am convinced that it means the opposite of that. Not quite the opposite of that, but something quite different from that. If it's the last one left east of the sea, all of the other homely houses are west of the sea. Home in the sense of being the home to the elves. Right? That's where the elves' home is. And they're all leaving to go there. Such that most of them has le have left now, and there is only one homely house remaining 
east of the sea. And indeed, in Rivendell, we find more of the High Elves remain there than anywhere else in Middle-earth, right? Um, exactly, Tony. So the other homely houses are awaiting them when they get back to the Undying Lands. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, uh, and, you know, Trifle, if you want to argue that it's not the last to the Elves, but the last to the Noldor, I'd be willing to hear that argument. Um, certainly we can see that apart from Galadriel, this is where we see most of the Noldor, right? So I can get behind that, but I want to think a little bit more broadly, right? Let's imagine it as homely in that sense. Like this is, this is the last place in Middle Earth where you can find a life, a house, right? A, uh, a, a place that is like Elvenholm, that is like, um, uh, that is like the blessed realm, right? The little piece of the blessed realm on earth. Um, so um, people were asking, did there used to be other homely houses? Yeah, in this sense, sure. You know, it was the number one homely house in this sense. If we're defining homely house as like the home of the elves, like elven home, but in Middle Earth, Gondolin. Gondolin is the homeliest house of all time. Exactly. Fourth Thalos was thinking the same thing. Gondolin is the... Remember, that's what Turgon did, right? Turgon set up to make something as much like Valinor's... Remember, he even made, like, faux trees, right? The Tree of Golden City. Not exactly faux, as if he was trying to pass them off as uh, knockoffs. But, um, um, but, yeah, I mean, actively recalling, right? Tony, I yes, Galandar, I also suspect that Linden, like when Gilgalad's, um, you know, center of power was also a homely house in this sense in the old days, right? Um, uh, Mornawen, Tyrion upon Tuna would be one of those homely houses west of the sea, right? Um, okay, so if we think about homely in this new sense, again, east of the sea is for me recontextualizing the entire phrase, last homely house, right? If we think about this in this new sense, then to me it begins to make more and more sense why this, in in what sense this could be the last and Lothlorien doesn't count, right? Lothlorien is it's neither homely nor a house, <laughs> right? Um, Lothlorien is something different. Galadriel... So, if you think about it, you think about, like, what has Elrond built with the power of his ring, and what has Galadriel built with the power of her ring? Right? And there are some interesting differences here. Galadriel... This is going to be a, a crude way of describing it. Um, but Rivendell looks to the west, whereas Lothlorien looks to itself, right? That is, so you've got, Rivendell is thinking about Valinor. Lothlorien is, so one is looking back, Lothlorien is looking forward, right? Lothlorien is attempt to build a new kingdom of elves, not without memory of the olden days, right? 
but a a new kingdom of Middle-earth in Middle-earth. Even the fact that she's the only Noldo in the place, right? Um, that it's all mostly Sylvan elves who are there is itself kind of suggestive. Like, I, this is a kingdom of Middle-earth, right? For those who decided to stay here, right? This is not a place for the exiles. This is not a place of the people who have come back from Valinor. They all hang out in Rivendell because Rivendell is homely to them, right? Rivendell is like Gondolin. It is insular, Mary. That's certainly true, um, as was Gondolin, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Trifle says that he would argue that Galadriel does exactly what Anatar suggests doing with the rings, build a rival to Valinor. Uh, yeah, something like that. Um, uh, no, for, forward-looking is not the right thing, Fourth Dauntless. It's a really, you're right. I mean, it's a very clumsy way to say it. But do you see the distinction I'm trying to make, though? It's not about forward versus backwards exactly. It's, um, but Rivendell seems to be focused on its connection to the West in ways that Lothlorien is not. Right. It's interested in itself. It's it's focused on on what is built there. Right. So I only mean forward looking in the sense of building something which will continue the elder days here in Middle Earth, moving into the future, whereas Rivendell is not is really looking backwards more. Um, But yeah, I think for as you were agreeing with me before. uh, Lothlorien is a place of Middle-earth preserved as it, if it had been untouched by time or the stain of corruption. Yeah, exactly. Lothlorien is Middle-earth as it could have been, right? That's not Rivendell. Rivendell is looking back to Elvenholm, right? Homely, in that sense. Homely for the elves, in that it is like Valinor. It is like Elvenholm. It's, it's, it's not either one, right? But it is like for elves who are, you know, as yet dwelling here in Middle-earth, it is, it is homely to them, especially exiles, especially those, uh, you know, the Noldor who were in Valinor. It'll remind them of Elvenholm. It'll remind them of the Blessed Realm. Um, yeah. So that's the that's the sense I would give to the word homely. And that's why it would make sense to me that Rivendell could be in this new sense, the last homely house east of the sea and Lothlorien isn't that it's, it's not that it's lesser. Um, it's just that it's different. It's, it's, it's trying to be something different. Um, yeah. Um, and the Havens. Yeah. Um, the Havens Lilith are not trying to be a home at all. Again, it's not that nobody lives there. But even Kyrton himself, who's been there for quite some time, is is yeah, transient, JJ, that's exactly it. Um it's um it's it's not he, he I doubt he even thinks of it as his home. Right. Kierden probably thinks of himself as camping there. Right. Until the day comes when his job is done. Right. Um, 
<laughs> pavements are a truck stop. Exactly, Mike. That's it. That's it. And you might, you, know, you might like the person who runs the diner at the truck stop, right? They're going to be there for a while, but it's not like it's home. Exactly. Right. Um, crownless. Yeah. The concept of tarrying is really central. I, I, I think that that seems to me right. Um, yeah. So, so the havens are not, a, are not a homely house either. Um, again, like Orthorian, they're neither homely nor a house, right? Um, so, yeah, yeah, I think that that's uh, that that makes sense. Um, so, Flamifer, the havens are at the center, maybe at the center geographically of Gilgalad's last kingdom, but I think it's pretty clear the passing of the ring from Gilgalad to Elrond seems to me to indicate fairly clearly that if there is left in Middle Earth a center of if like if there's if something remains of the kingdom of Gilgalad in Middle Earth, it's in Rivendell, right? It's not at the Havens. Um, so the Havens might be geographically closer to where Gilgalad used to hang out, right? But I don't think that um, the heart of Gilgalad's realm of old is there still. The heart of Gilgalad's Gilgalad's realm of old, that of it which survives uh, into the Third Age of Middle Earth, is in Rivendell. It's, I, I think, you know, Elrond is his heir in that sense. Um, yeah. Um, so, Lilith asks, why does Frodo use this term for Rivendell if it's a place that the elves would only feel, that the elves only would feel as the last homely house? Well, here's a thought, Lilith. Remember that this whole paragraph is bringing us into contact with the Hobbit, right? And he begins by recalling the name for Rivendell that was given, the name for the House of Elrond that was given in the Hobbit, the last homely house, right? And then what does he do? He transforms it, right? He transforms it. And yes, JJ, Elrond was Gilgalad's number one guy. Uh, Elrond was Gilgalad's right-hand dude for a long time. Elrond lived with him in Linden for thousands of years. Um, yeah, he was his herald. Exactly. Um, uh, yeah, Elrond was totally Gilgalad's right-hand guy. Um, anyhow, so, okay. Frodo. So why would Frodo do this? Remember that we're told in the prologue, which we didn't discuss yet, that Frodo and Sam were both reluctant to change anything that Bilbo actually wrote, right? When In The Hobbit. Um, but although Frodo might be loath to change anything with his own hand that Bilbo wrote in his memoirs, right? I don't think that Frodo is at all against mm, recontextualizing, right? See what I mean? Um, uh, Frodo, when he comes to write The Lord of the Rings, right, now has a totally different perspective on Rivendell than Bilbo did when he wrote The Hobbit, right? 
Um, it was the place that it was the it was Bilbo's favorite rest area on the way to and from the Lonely Mountain. Right. And so he thought of it as the last homely house or the first homely house when you're going back in the other direction. Right. And he when he called it the last homely house, he had, you know, this one relatively narrow, comparatively inexperienced Right. I mean, he gave it that name, apparently, like when he was very inexperienced, right, in his first month of 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 adventure. Right. So. Um, Frodo is looking back on the name that um, Frodo that Bilbo gave to Rivendell and Frodo, the elf friend, now with his much broader experience of Middle Earth and of the elves and everything else. Right now perceives something. He perceives, you know, this is the last homely house, but not only in the very limited sense in which Bilbo described that in The Hobbit, right? It is the last homely house, but in a very different sense. So he repeats the name, right? Deliberately connecting back to what Bilbo said, but then recontextualizing it. The last homely house east of the sea, which completely transforms the sense of the name. Both of those words. Maybe the third, too. I think it might transform what it means by house, too, but we don't have to go there necessarily. Um, uh, we already talked about that to some extent when we talked about um, uh, Gorfindel, when this came up with Gorfindel. Um, so it would make, it makes a lot of sense to me that Frodo would do that both to make the connection and also to um, uh, and also to to recontextualize it, right? To broaden the sense of that. And having done that, right? Having repeated, but transformed, really, Bilbo's title, Bilbo's description of Rivendell, he then goes on to quote Bilbo's description, right? Bilbo might not have understood yet. He certainly does now, right? Uh, but he did not at the time he wrote his memoirs. Um, he did not at the time understand the full significance of Rivendell, what Rivendell really meant to the elves and to Middle Earth, right? He didn't get that. He just thought it was uh, Arden Crayon, exactly as you say, uh, the last, uh, tr the last TripAdvisor five-star hotel on his journey, right? That he was going to find. Yes, that's how Bilbo saw it before. So Bilbo didn't see that. But Frodo immediately assures us that does not change the fact that Bilbo's insight into Rivendell was also still true. It may be the last homely house east of the sea in a much more significant sense, in a much broader, more important sense than Bilbo saw. But it is still also a perfect house, whether you like food or sleep or storytelling or singing or just sitting and thinking best or a pleasant mixture of them all. Right. Those things are still true. So for Frodo, particularly, remember, this is recovering Frodo. This is uh, Frodo now returning to consciousness and health for the first time. Uh, second time to consciousness, right? First time to health and that he's now going to get out of bed. Um, Rivendell has still retains part. It still retains all of the significance that it had for Bilbo. It's going to have more, too, right? Um, now he understands it more. The 
the refreshment, the rest that he's able to get at Rivendell means much more to Frodo than it did to Bilbo. Bilbo was, you know, tuckered out by the time he got to Rivendell on his trip, right? He was not chased across the ford by ringwraiths, right? He was not grievously wounded at peril of, of body and soul, right, on the way to Rivendell. You know, Bilbo's refreshment that he received from his short rest was of a very limited kind. But Frodo needs that, right? His need for it is greater, but the thing that he needs from it is the same thing that he needed. So Elrond's house is still homely in Bilbo's sense. And Frodo immediately goes on to emphasize that, right? Even after he has drawn our attention to the fact that it is the last homely house in multiple senses. And so therefore we are sent up, we're now wandering off into Rivendell in the story for the first time. All we've seen is the inside of Frodo's guest room, right? And the beams on the ceiling, right? And a brief glimpse of what's out the window and Gandalf's chair. Now he's going to go out into Rivendell. Now we're going to, we're going to meet Rivendell for the first time. And as we do, we get these two things, right? We get this reminder of its significance on a, on a very material level, right? Um, the perfection of this house as a place to rest and recover. And Frodo really needs that. Um, but of course, we also have this very brief, but very intriguing allusion to the broader significance of it, which we've already had hinted, right? Glorfindel, Glorfindel's presence uh, and his relationship with the House of Elrond um, is has already suggested to us that Rivendell's kind of a big deal from an Elvish perspective, right? Um, so, uh, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, good. Let's see. Um, good. Tony is recalling the dis uh, what the narrator said uh, when they wake up from the barrow. Uh, people that, after being long ill and bedridden, wake one day to find that they are unexpectedly well and the day is again full of promise. Yeah, a good passage for us to remember, as that does seem to be uh, uh, something like uh, 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 Frodo's experience here. Um, okay, so... All right, Cecilia, I'll, I'll, I will allow a question about the word house. <laughs> Since we, we might as well, um, just asking a, a, a really good question: Is Rivendell? Are we supposed to be imagining that Rivendell is one house, or like, is it one big house, or are there many smaller houses around Rivendell? Um, I have no doubt that. Tolkien seems to have imagined it as one primary house. Uh, that's what he painted when he painted the picture of Rivendell. Um, but I, I do think that he, uh, it does not seem to me to be impossible that there are other houses too. Um, and now I'm questioning my memory. Um, somebody look it up, Google it. If you don't have it with you, somebody find me the painting, um, his painting of Rivendell. Are there other roofs? I know you get the one homely house very clearly, right? Um, but are there other are there other smaller houses that he actually depicts in his painting? Um, 
Ambrosius Aurelianus is thinking, uh, you know, house in the sense of estate, possibly. Um, it also almost has to mean house in the uh, um, in the other sense. Okay, that's the Rivendell picture I was thinking of. Ambrosius Aurelianus, thank you for that. Uh, and that is, so hang on, let me bring this over to the main screen for a second. It's small, but there it is. Um, there's the last homely house. And we don't see any other buildings in this picture. Um, that doesn't mean it's inappropriate to think of that being true um, or that it's impossible. It just means he's only emphasized the one house. So it seems at least possible, if not likely, that Tolkien himself imagined it as... Um, one house, one building. Um, but again, I don't think separate buildings are precluded uh, from that description, even based upon his uh, um, his painting. <laughs> Lilith, I agree. There's a lot of forest around the house there uh, in that painting, and it's certainly possible for other smaller houses uh, to be in the woods there. Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. So, uh, but it is certainly a very big house. Yeah, very big house. Sure, absolutely. Um, the extent to which it means house in the, uh, like, genealogical sense, uh, as when Gildor says, I am of the house of Finrod, um, that's a little bit less clear. In what sense could a house be homely? Like a house of that kind be homely? I'm not really sure. Um, and uh, um, and anyway, Elrond, he's got a great pedigree but he doesn't have a house in that sense. I mean, he's got kids, he's got family, but is there a house in that ancestral sense? Is there a house of Elrond? Um, I mean, kind of, I guess. Why am I resistant to that? I'm resistant to that because... The role that Elrond plays in the Silmarillion, and and I don't just mean in the published Silmarillion, like all the way through the Silmarillion tradition, like Elrond's number one job as a creation in Tolkien's stories at all was an endpoint. He was. This is why I saw I, I, you guys. At talking earlier, Maven and others were talking about his his parent, you know, his identity, right? Is he Noldo? Is he whatever? And uh, Maven was saying yeah, he's kind of a Heinz 57 elf. Yeah, no, absolutely. But again, that's his job. In the Silmarillion, that's his job. He is, um, he is related to everybody. Like, almost every major lineage in the Silmarillion, like, Elrond is its fruit. 
Elrond is designed to be like the 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 spot where all of the family trees come together. He is in his own person, like the survival of um the survival of like the entire first age. He is the legacy of the first age. That is like his role. Clearly, repeatedly, his role uh in the Silmarillion tradition, right? From the early his earliest appearance in the Silmarillion tradition all the way to the end, he is the the so when you talk about a house, you know, you know, like a house like the house of Elrond, you think of it as like from the progen- from the progenitor, right? So just as as when the Noldor came, you have like they divided and, and established their own kingdoms, so you have the house of Finrod, right? Um by which he really meant Fingon, but whatever, because uh, Tolkien hadn't changed that name yet. But it, you have a house of Finrod, right? Because Finrod established a kingdom. Um, but uh, Elrond, again, he's the the bottom of the tree. He's not the top of the tree. Um, yeah, Tony, you're right. Elrond and Elros both end up, of course... Elrond came first and Elros, he, you know, Tolkien clones Elrond later on and gives him a twin um, so that he can do both things, uh, both be the elf, uh, you know, the the quintessential elf of the first age while also being the king of Numenor. Um, but anyway, OK. All right. So. Yes, Elrond and Elros both end up in that position. And as you say, Tony, it's a big deal when those lines are reunited in Aragorn and Arwen. Right, so Aragorn and Arwen then become themselves at the end of the Third Age, the same thing that Elrond was at the end of the First Age. So Elrond and Elros arguably were, so that the line of Elessar, right, the line of the kings of Gondor that are to come from Arwen and Aragorn, um, embody everything of the Elder Days, right? All of the Elf realms, Melian, all of the Edain all of, uh, uh, you know, and then like all of the second and third age stuff, right? The Dunedain and everything, right? It's, it all comes through in, uh, uh, in the line of Alessar there in Gondor. Um, so I agree that, that, that works that way. Um, so yes, JJ, there probably, there definitely is a house of Alessar, right? Aragorn is in that role of establishing a house, but Elrond, that's, that's why I feel uncomfortable talking about it as a house in that sense. Yes, I, you're right. Fourth Thalmas, of course, it's going to be the house of Telkantar, uh, not the house of Elessar. But still, anyway. Um, yeah. Okay, that's enough contemplation of house. Uh, let's see if we can complete the first sentence of the first the first paragraph of the first slide, shall we? Um Okay. Merely to be there was a cure for weariness, fear, and sadness. So, again, emphasizing, bring, bring back to Frodo, right? Emphasizing the, uh, um, the importance of the homeliness of the house in the mundane sense, right? Um, the importance of that to Frodo. As the evening drew on, Frodo woke up again 
and he found that he no longer felt in need of rest or sleep, but had a mind for food and drink and probably for singing and storytelling afterwards. Um, so he kind of goes, recalls back through that catalog and says, you know what? Okay. Um, I've had enough of the sleep, right? Time for some more of the active pleasures of, of Rivendell. Um, what do we learn about him? Um, this whole, these whole next two paragraphs are about Frodo rediscovering himself, right? He wakes up and find not only that he's okay, but that he's happy. He has a mind for food and drink and for singing and storytelling afterwards. It's a good place to be. And he's in a good place to be in that place. Right. Um, he discovered that his arm was nearly as useful again as it had ever been. I love the humility implicit in that final clause, right? It was never very useful to begin with, but in as much as it has ever been useful, it is almost that useful again, right? Um, uh, it's a very, very humble statement, and it makes me smile every time, uh, every time <laughs> I read that. Um, nearly as useful as it ever had been. Um, his discovery of his own arm, uh, as if he's being reintroduced to his own arm, um, uh, yeah, um, you know, but he, I don't, I don't think he shakes his own hand. Um, but again, discovered that his arm was nearly as useful again as it had ever been, um, meeting his arm here, right. For the, uh, for the first time, um, he gets, he gets new clothes, clean garments of green cloth that fitted him excellently. Remember hobbits really like the color green. We're told that in the prologue. Uh, so I were told that back in the Hobbit, aren't we green and yellow? Isn't that a chapter one of the Hobbit thing that gets in there? As I recall, uh, Certainly, I know it's in the prologue. Is that in the Hobbit? I'm forgetting now. Um, Y'all can tell me. Um, Okay. Yeah. Green and yellow. Right. But is it in the Hobbit or is it just... It's in Concerning Hobbits? I was pretty sure it was in there. Uh, I couldn't remember if it was a parenthetical that got thrown in uh, in one of those... In the first chapter of The Hobbit. Um, But anyway... Um, like the hair on their heads, parentheses, which was curly, right? Uh, one of those parentheticals there. Uh, but anyway, um, okay. Red, clean garments that fit him excellently and that are a color, which is a favorite color of hobbits. Um, aha, JJ, it is in the hobbit. I was right. Inclined to be fat in the stomach, they dress in bright colors, chiefly green and yellow, in parentheses, just like I said. Phew. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Um, uh, very good. Okay. Um, so. New clothes. New clothes seems to me to be an important thing in some sense, right? We had already the hobbits losing their clothes and running naked in the grass after the barrow incident, right? And having to wear some of their warmer, their, their, 
their things that they their warm weather gear that they brought against warmer weather right because they lost you know their old clothes remember we talked about sam's question about what became of their clothes and speculating about that um but being given new clothes is on the one first of all keep in mind new clothes are kind of a big deal new clothes that fit excellently are a really big deal Clothing is one of the top five things that people in a post-industrial world have a hard time projecting themselves back into a pre-industrial mindset about, right? Uh, uh, we mentioned one of them, another one of them last time. Horses are another one, right? It's hard for us to uh, re recreate how people looked at horses back in the pre-industrial world. Um, but clothes are definitely another one of those things which just had so much of a different significance in a pre-industrial world um just picking up clothes off a rack right is so i mean clothing is very very yeah scudo and flamifer absolutely right clothing is expensive it is difficult to make not only is it you know you've got to stitch it all by hand and everything, you know, cut and stitch it all by hand. Um, but the materials, right. And getting all of the different materials, it is tough. Um, new clothing. Yeah. Uh, Tarlonial says she was reading the Nibelungen lead and, and it's like 75% of it is about clothes. Totally happens. Totally happens. Um, so, um, yeah, yeah, exactly. You would, you, you to get, I mean, those of you who are, um, you know, fans of 19th century British literature will, all, will also remember uh, getting a new suit of clothes was often like an annual treat for servants on, on, uh, on, on, on Lady Day. I mean, like, that's a big deal. If you're given a new dress, oh my goodness, a new dress, uh, you know, that's something you might only get once every few years. So, um, so... New excellent fitting clothes are a really big deal. This is a this is a this is a very generous gift. So it's this is not just like, and they did the common courtesy of like putting out some clothes for him to put on, right? Um, this is a this is a big deal. Yes, Taweth Bilbo had whole rooms devoted to clothes, exactly, which means wealthy, right? That is a that is a wealth marker. Now keep in mind. Tolkien was being much less deliberate in his world building in The Hobbit, right? So, I mean, Bilbo also had a clock on his mantelpiece, right? Let's not forget that. So, um, Tolkien spent much less time when writing The Hobbit thinking about, like, what was life in this pre-industrial society like, right? That's, we always have to keep that in mind. But anyway, um, uh, yeah, exactly, Ambrosius. Uh, Arthur, <laughs> I do sometimes stutter over your name. Um, they would reuse cloth until it was literally falling apart, at which point they would mash it and turn it into paper. Yep, exactly. That's just how things worked. Um, so, anyhow, this is a generous gift. This is a kind and thoughtful gift. And it's... Um, 
significant. You know, he is now he is an elf friend, and he is now dressed in the garments made for him by the elves. Um, it's going to be kind of significant when they get their Lothlorien cloaks later on, right? Uh, significant, I think, in a different way. But the mere fact that Frodo is now walking around in a new, brand new suit of clothes made for him by elves in Rivendell, there's a little bit of an element of, like, at least a sort of shade, right, of a new life for Frodo here. Again, waking up in this moment after his experience, coming back from being so close to death and now beginning life again, reintroducing himself to his own limbs and being like, hey, look at that. My arm works almost as well as it used to do. Um, you know, this he's rediscovering his own body and he's now going to reintroduce himself to himself, right, as he looks himself in the mirror. He is startled to see a much thinner reflection of himself. It looked like the young nephew of Bilbo who used to go tramping with his uncle in the Shire. But the eyes looked out at him thoughtfully. He sees himself... Um, uh, he sees himself as a... He, he looks younger. He looks like his young self. He no longer looks... Uh, portly and middle-aged, right? He looks more like he remembers looking when he was young. Um, so he's, he's lost weight, right? He's, um, uh, he's, he's, he's thinner and fitter. Remember, of course, the comment in the Midwater Marshes about this, right? When he was told he was looking twice the Hobbit that he used to, and Frodo joked, you know, that there was, uh, uh, that was surprising because there was a good deal less of him. Right. Um, but um, and of course, you'll remember that that ended with the joke about him turning into a wraith, which I doubt he's going to joke uh, any more about. Right. Uh, because he did almost turn into a wraith. Um, so the thinning process has not gone on indefinitely, but it has reached a remarkable point. And when it reaches this point, he's healthier, he's fitter, but he also looks both younger and older than the last time he saw himself, right? Frodo sees himself in a mirror and he is shocked at what he sees. On the one hand, he looks younger. He reminds himself of his younger self following Bilbo around, tramping with his uncle in the Shire, like the good old days when Bilbo was still there, right? Um, but his eyes have changed. His eyes look out at him thoughtfully. Um, just as his body is different than it was when last he saw himself, his eyes are different from when last he saw himself. He has seen a lot. Of, I, I think back of the the eyes line in Bilbo's, uh, the poem that Bilbo makes, Bilbo's first real poem, um, when, uh, you know, the, 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 which is, of course, the road goes ever, ever on at the end of The Hobbit. Um, eyes which fire and sword have seen and horror in the halls of stone look again um oh shoot how's that line end look again on and and tree fields and trees they once have known. meadows green thank you look again on meadows green and trees and fields they once have known yes um bilbo describing how like, what his eyes have seen 
right? How much his eyes have seen, not just more countryside than he was used to seeing, right? But he's been, he's seen significant things. He's been changed. Um, his eyes are now going to be looking out at the old familiar things again. After having seen what they've seen, what's going to happen? I've always said that I think that there's an implicit, almost an anxiety in that, uh, in that stanza of that poem when Bilbo sings it in The Hobbit. Um, what's it going to be like? Um, can I go back again? I'm almost back again, right? Is, are, are the trees and fields, is it going to look the same, right? Frodo seeing his eyes staring at him out of the mirror, his thoughtful eyes. I think we can see a similar, um, uh, I think that we can see a similar, uh, uh, not anxiety here in this case, but an acknowledgement, um, a similar kind of acknowledgement, an acknowledgement that he himself has been changed, has been altered in some sense by his experiences. Um, yeah, he he does see, I think, looking at him thoughtfully, his eyes are um, showing more wisdom than they have. They have certainly experienced more, right? And he's survived it, um, and he has gained some wisdom. Um, yeah. Um, and he speaks to them, his eyes. Yes, you have seen a thing or two since you last peeped out of a looking glass, he said to his reflection. But now for a merry meeting. So. Do we get a mirror scene in Bag End Trifle? I'm not remembering for sure. I don't get a reference to a mirror, of course, the convex mirror uh, that we discussed at some length before. Um, I still love Lee's reading of that, but anyway, um, oh, he's, he's, when he thinks he's looking rather flabby. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. I remember that now. Yes. Yes. Um, good. You have seen a thing or two since you last peeped out of a looking glass, he said to his reflection. So for Thoughtless, he is addressing his reflection. But it seems to be the eyes that he's talking to. I mean, it's the eyes that peep out of a reflection, right? Or out of a out of a out of a looking glass, rather. Uh, it's the eyes that are doing the peeping. He uses lighthearted language, right? But here's the other thing I can't help but remember. Frodo I don't want to go too far with this because this could, this could get really cheesy and, and, and sort of English teachery pretty quickly um, sorry I shouldn't insult English teachers of which I am one uh, with that phrase what I mean by that I think when I call something English teachery I am kind of casting back to my early days in English classes when I used to get really annoyed at what I felt to be like forced examples of symbolism uh, in works of literature. Um, 
And I always found that really, I loved books and I loved reading and I loved talking about books, but I really disliked English class because it seemed like really contrived and forced, like, and this is a symbol of that. And I'm like, oh, okay, what does that have to do with the story? Um, I'm not saying that I necessarily in retrospect, think they were all wrong about that, but I definitely wasn't getting it. I was not seeing it at the time. Um, and so still like to, to be like, and this is like a symbol of that is, is what I still think of that as like English teachery. But anyway, um, uh, yeah, fortunately trifle, that was even before I'd been exposed to anything like psychoanalytical, uh, symbolic interpretation. Um, <laughs> but anyway, um, um, let me, um, Oh, interesting. Arthur says that phenomenon contributed to his majoring in history instead of English, uh, despite his passion for literature. Um, yeah, no, still benefits to that. I agree. Anyway, let me go on and say the thing that I've been uh, 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 con uh, contextualizing here. Um, yes, Frodo is reflecting on his experience and how they've changed him. Here's the other thing. Um the image that he's talking to. So there's, there's two Frodo's here in the room, right? There's Frodo, the physical Frodo. And then there's the thing, which is merely the image of Frodo that he's facing. I can't help but think of the other side and the Wraith world discussion. Again, we should stop using the phrase Wraith world because we've certainly shown that it's not about the, the raids don't own that place. Um, they only are hijacking it uh, in some ways. But this idea of the image of Frodo. Yeah, it, uh, Luke. Yeah, the looking glass Frodo. Um, I think, Luke, that's the link that's also leading me in this direction. Uh, Luke, of course, is thinking about Alice Through the Looking Glass, the famous Lewis Carroll book, which Tolkien loved, loved, loved. Lewis and Tolkien both absolutely adore Alice Through the Looking Glass um, and referred to it many, many times. You know, I mean, we're talking, I, if I remember correctly, Tolkien translated The Walrus and the Carpenter into, <laughs> into Quenya. Uh, so anyway, um, through... And Alice through, through through the looking glass, the looking glass, like the looking glass person, it's, it, it's, it's a different world, right? There is this like alternative world on the other side of the looking glass. Um, and uh, um, so when I see Frodo at a looking glass, speaking to the looking glass Frodo as if it were a separate person who like the two of them are in this together. Right. And this coming right after the traumatic experience, Frodo having just awoken from his traumatic experience in which like he was in the two worlds and being dragged across from in the, from the one world into the other, just like, um, uh, just like, uh, uh, Alice, of course, travels into Looking Glass world, right? And uh, has a sort of a hard time getting back to her regular world. Anyway, oh, doing Alice in Mythgard Academy is a good idea, Tony. We should absolutely do Through the Looking Glass, uh, especially th th through, through the Looking Glass uh, in uh, Mythgard Academy someday. Anyway, um, so anyhow, I... I I don't want to make too much of it, but it's 
Um, and especially then here's the other thing, right? I remember that, that he's almost alluding to the fat joke that he made before about the thinning process going on indefinitely until he becomes a wraith. Right. So all of those things together, his recollection of the fat joke, which involved him turning into a wraith, which then of course became almost horribly, literally true when he was like himself in the, our world and in the, uh, and in that other world on the other side. Um, and now like him reflecting back on that and seeing that he is in fact, uh, you know, uh, twice the Hobbit and, you know, the thinning process has gone on, uh, and it has affected him. He hasn't become a wraith, but his eyes are wiser because of his encounter with that other world. Uh, and then again, you add the looking glass stuff on top and I can't help but sort of link all these things together. What do I do with that? Does that help at all? I don't know, but it's interesting. Um, him addressing his reflection in the second person is kind of interesting, right? This sort of sense of distance that Frodo has attained from himself during this whole process, Right. Um, he, I don't think that he's splitting himself. You know, I don't think, you know, I, I don't, th I certainly don't think that this is like meant to suggest covertly that, you know, Frodo is really like partially still in the spirit world and whatever, you know, like that, that, no, I'm not saying that. Um, but, um, well, I think this is as far as I would go. As we've said, Frodo's broken, right? Frodo has received a wound from which he's never going to recover. And one of the things, never going to recover in Middle Earth anyway. And one of the things that, um, that we see there. Yeah, it's not a Smeagol Gollum thing happening just yet, but actually JJ, that's a, and, and, and Christy, that's a really good parallel, right? Um, He's not Gollum yet, but both of them have been damaged in a similar way, right? Both of them have been spread between the two sides, right? The regular world and this other spiritual world. Um, and neither of them are whole. Both of them need healing. Gollum and Frodo both need healing, right? Um, Frodo, at least, is going to get it. And remember, we talked about how this new understanding of the other side that we came to really helps to understand why his going to the Blessed Realm in the end is the natural. It's not just that they're, you know, have higher level healers there, um, but that uh, retiring there and going to live there um, instead of the sort of warped fake version that he got, twisted version. Uh, that he got through his wound and also to some extent through the ring, right? Um, uh, you know, has had the, the damage that that did. But the damage that is done to Frodo, the damage that was clearly done to Gollum, is to split them, right? They are divided. Um, they are divided between the two worlds. They now have, like the wraiths, they have a... a a, a, a stake in both worlds, right? Um, part of them is in both worlds. And with Frodo, that's clearly true. He's still linked. His wound has been healed, right? But its marks are still on him, um, as are the 
as you know the the ring itself and the the the, the power that the ring so again him talking to himself in the mirror him addressing his reflection as you is a very gentle anticipation of that right and it's it's miles away from the way that Gollum talks to himself it's miles away but it's on the same path right and i think that it's kind of interesting to see those things kind of connected together the kind of split that we see in Frodo, Frodo and his reflection, him, ta- him reintroducing himself, him seeing himself anew. He has been in part rejuvenated, right? His physical part has been rejuvenated, but his spiritual part has been aged, has been damaged, has been healed and increased in wisdom as well as a consequence. Right. But, um, he's been, he's been split, you know, he's been, his, his, his butter is being spread, Right. Uh, spread thin um so yeah anyway that's um uh that seems to me to be in some sense foreshadowed by his talking to his reflection here and by this it's it's a significant thing that we get here on the one hand it's like a check-in with frodo right um by showing us this tolkien is able to to demonstrate to us like okay where is frodo how is frodo different now Right. Um, and we get that. Um, but um, yeah, Tony says it makes Frodo's line to Sam about uh, about how Sam is meant to be uh, to be uh, to be whole. Right. Um, yeah, absolutely. It is much more poignant when you think about it that way. He can't be whole um, and not in Middle Earth anyway. Um, but um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, so. In showing us where Frodo is, we're seeing lots of positives, right? And again, I don't think talking to yourself in the mirror is any sure indication that you're, uh, you know, on this uh, uh, road of, you know, which is of lack of spiritual healing and all that. But I do think that, um, um, I do think that it's a foreshadowing, that it's a hint of what is to come. What's his response? He stretches out his, you know, now for a merry meeting, he says, he stretched out his arms and whistled a tune. He is anticipating that a merry meeting is going to happen. But what I also hear there, he is deciding that a merry meeting is going to now for a merry meeting. It is time for a merry meeting. He's going to be merry. He's made up his mind about that. Right. And that I think is important. You know, his will is not yet broken. His will is uh, still set on merriment and whistling a tune. Um, I'm not sure why he stretches out his arms. I'm not sure about that. Um, Sideways? Like this? Presumably not like this. Why would he do that? Why would he do any of it? Everyone's thought about him stretching out his arms. Yeah, just limbering up, right? Stretching. Feeling the fit of the clothes. Yeah, he just put on his new clothes. Showing that he can. Yeah, Mary, that he's no longer paralyzed. Yeah, yeah. Part of seeing it now, he seems to already have introduced himself, reintroduced himself to his limb, right? 
Um, always stretch before merrymaking. Yeah, you don't want to pull something right <laughs> during the merrymaking. Yeah, you gotta make sure to stretch first. Yeah, yeah, that's good. That's good. So yeah, I think he's probably stretching, right? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. He's he's limbering up for the merriment. That all works for me. That makes sense to me. Okay. All right. So today I was jumping right into the text after my brief sidelight on what we're doing here so that we could, like, get through as much as possible. I had no idea we were going to spend such a long time talking about the last homely house. But you know what? That's because the addition of East of the Sea to to the phrase last homely house is I never noticed that. Never once. I've read The Lord of the Rings a lot of times. I have never noticed that. Um, I always let that slide right past me. And once you guys drew attention to it at the beginning of our discussion here, like, whew, all of a sudden, right, this whole thing explodes. And you can see the completely new meanings for that. That is so awesome. So... Yeah. Oh, and I don't know what he's whistling. It's clearly a merry tune. No question. Um, If I were to be doing it. Yeah. Which one? Which tune? That's what I'm thinking too, Flamifer. If there's one of the Hobbit songs that we know that he's whistling. Could be the road goes ever on. No, I don't think so. I think he's whistling. I think he's whistling. Uh, ho ho ho! To the bottle I go. That would be my top vote. It's possible that it could be the bath song. That's also possible. Uh, the old troll song. It could be the old troll song. Um, Tarlonio. He could be uh, whistling tra la la la. Presumably Bilbo tried to reproduce that for him. Um, cow jumped over the moon. Uh, the cow jumped over the moon and the old troll were his last thoughts before he fell asleep. Right. So, um, I think, you know, he could definitely be whistling either one of those. Those were on his mind right before he went to sleep and he was thinking about Bilbo. Um, but, um, so those are very, those are, I think, strong candidates. Tra la 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 though. Yeah. Yeah. When we get to the scene in film film, I will try to remember to have him whistle the same tune or a variant of the tune uh, that we give to Tralalalale when we do our full orchestral um, uh, song and dance number of Tralalalale in the Hobbit sequence. Totally. Yep. Yep. Um, Okay, well, Fourth Thoughtless likes to think it's the troll song. It's the very last one that he says before he falls asleep. And then Sam's about to walk into the room. Uh, so it's kind of fun. You know, Whistle Sam's song and he comes is, is, is sort of fun. I like that. I'm totally, I'm totally down with that. I think that could work. Um, but um, uh, Tra La La Lolly, I think, is, is pretty cool. All right. Edith Aldora on Twitch. I'm going to forget you made that suggestion. 
<laughs> Certainly does not whistle Glenn Yarbrough's The Greatest Adventure Song. Worst song associated with a Tolkien production ever. Okay. Um, <laughs> anyway, that is it for our class tonight. I'm going to... Uh, uh, so I'm going to let the Twitter folks go. Um, oh, uh, we will have class next week. So next week is the first week. So yeah, we'll have class next week. I'm going to be gone the week after that. Um, so we'll, we'll have to skip a week there, the second week of June, but next week, first week of June, uh, we all will be here as, uh, uh, as normal. So, all right. So I'll see everybody next week. So thank you to you guys there on, uh, Twitter. For joining us, feel free to join us at twitch.tv slash signumu. Thanks to the uh, uh, folks on the Talon there uh, uh, for joining me again this week. Always lovely to have you guys there. Um, the Talon, in case, uh, just for those of you who don't know of its existence, uh, is this, it's a separate chat window that we have open to be... Um, more accessible to the vision impaired. Um, some people who've had a lot of trouble working and couldn't get into um, Discord and stuff. It was hard. Um, so we have a, a special um, uh, Google Hangouts window that we use for uh, the vision impaired because um, it's easier for them. So thanks, guys, for joining us there again. Um, and I'm going to say goodbye to the Twitter folks. Thanks to you guys. Good night. Okay, there we go. Hi there. Hi, Valorian. So, uh, hi there. So just a reminder, Pontin actually had a song he was yes. going to... Yes, okay, so we're going to, before we song. go off on our field trip, we have a special song, right? All right, so i uh, make some room here. Oh, hang on a second. Wait, wait, before you start the special no, he's song. Already... Okay, all right. Start doing started. a special song? Hang on. i got to make sure my right. audio is on. I think my, okay, player music volume is on. Okay.
donor, boner. Donna's old seat is still the same when the bony bone from its owner. Awesome. Very good, Pontine. Thanks for that. That was, a fab- that was well done. Fabulous. And that was taken from the from the Tolkien's recording of it too. So yeah, yeah, very good. That was very well done. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you, Pontine. That was that was very very good. I'm always so uh, imp- uh, the uh, music stuff in uh, uh, in Lotro is one of the things that yep. I've still never never really done myself, and I'm always so impressed uh, by the. Uh, <sighs> the the arrangements people make yeah it's one of those things where if there were an additional five hours to my day possibly (laughs) yes yes excellent um well well done awesome thank you pontine thank you all right so um we're headed back uh to kellendim today Uh having to do more exploring having explored the docks <laughs> last time we're now going to go look at some buildings. Uh, so let's head out over to Erdloen. Okay. Sorry. Didn't get around the banister there. Okay. Here we go. Yeah. I'm running into things. My fingers feel weird in the mask. I got super glue on my fingers and it still hasn't come off. <laughs> <laughs> That'll mess up your game. Yes, it will. Okay. And, um, oh, different stable, different, this one, this stable. <laughs> yeah. Going By the time west, I figured that out, we're going to be going to some other stable point on the other side, like the Misty Mountains. <laughs> and then I'll get stuck again, going to the wrong stable. Exactly. Okay. Oh, Taweth, yes, I do want to see that spot near the Ward Spire. Um thinking though, let's look around in the buildings in Kellendim itself first. Since mm-hmm. we were there. Yeah, we got lots of time for Thorns Hall and Ward Spire for sure. Yeah. yeah. Ward Spire is, as I recall, kind of far away. Yeah, that's um, closer to, it's actually closer to the Thorns Hall part. Right. Exactly. Um so we'll get there. We'll totally get there. Um but um it's off a it's off a Gondaman. Off a Gondaman. So we'll work our okay. way there for sure. Yeah, yeah we'll get there. Um, all right. What can I do for you? There you go. Just introducing myself to the stable master. All right. So we started at the docks and we were looking at the different docks, and I'm pleased with that way. I love the departure dock with the little trees. Um, now let's let's look inland here. So I'm looking at the. It's hard to look uphill. Uh, certainly, we can't get a. Oh look, we got all our banners up there. Oh yes. Right, the dragon. We've got the fire and the water. Have those always been there? Is that new? They've probably always been there. I have no memory of this place. <laughs> and the stars. Yeah. Wait. They're missing they're missing the earth one? Yeah. No, no, we got the earth one. The earth one is Oh, it's, here, at, the, it's on the other side. The tree. Right? This is the tree, this is the earth. It doesn't one. go all the way around that. 
We don't get the... We, we are missing some. I can't figure out the which air. one we're missing. but We're missing the air one. Uh -huh. The one with the stars and the wind, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. That's interesting. Quite. But who are they for? Is that supposed... To, it's not for people coming in. It's definitely for people going out. That's well, all everyone does face, here. They face the harbor, yeah. I mean, there's, there's the no harbor. banners at all on the uphill side. Uh -huh. Even though people coming down this staircase, right, are going to be looking square at that gazebo. Yeah, here oh, we go. Yeah. Square at the bannerless side of the gazebo. So yep. people coming down this, this set of stairs, right, could this chop treacherous liver as far as the railingless stair. Oh, they're going to be stop chop liver if they fall off these stairs. Yeah, that's certainly true. I mean, nothing left. Well, it's not that steep, you know. You won't even. I know, but remember, this is one of the first worlds a lot of people visit, so it's very much like watching yearlings trying to navigate stairs. <laughs> right, right. Interesting. Look, the right. same potted trees around the, as are out on the uh, the departure dock. Uh -huh. Like, why would you put potted trees on the ground instead of just planting them? Is the water salinous? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I it looks kind of rocky here, admittedly. Well, there's there's some trees here. It's not like where you get out to the ocean and everything's just coniferous nonsense. Yeah. Yeah, travel says maybe you take them with you to Valinor. Here's a little chunk of Middle Earth to remember as you. Well, go they back do to, to give dirt away as gifts, so why not? Well, that's it, right? You take a like take a little potted tree from Middle Earth. I can totally see. I give you doing dirt that. from my garden and air from my lungs. Exactly. <laughs> Doctor Who joke. Air from my lungs. I get it. Yeah. I yeah. Give you air Season from my one, lungs. episode two. Ninth Doctor. Um, uh, so that means, remember when we were talking about elves packing, well, maybe yes. that's what they packed <laughs> right there. That's why those aren't decorations. That's luggage on that, on that dock. Yeah, uh, it's all yeah, making sense yeah. now. Okay. What kind of sense. tree is this then? This is, this is a coniferous. This is definitely some kind of evergreen pine. Maybe a, oh yeah. Yeah. Some kind of evergreen thing. Yeah. It's a needleless tree. Yeah. Um, oh, it's Christmas trees. <laughs> they're bringing Christmas trees back with Christmas them trees. <laughs> to It's not very Christmas tree-like. It's kind of like Charlie Brown. This is like the Christmas trees that we had when my family lived in Cyprus. It was a bush. Okay, right. <laughs> More of a Christmas shrub than a Christmas tree, exactly. Um, yeah. Well... Well, you know what this makes me think of, though? Remember the branches of, uh, what was it called? Oyolose? That the okay. Numenorians used to attach to their ships? Okay. And if it withered, it was a really bad sign? Um, yes. That's what it kind of reminds me of. All right, hang on. Uh, trifle, where... Like a, like a can like a canary for the coal mine kind of thing. <laughs> well, no, not exactly. It was a, it was a like a sign of the blessing of the Valar in the Numenorean days. But this is not Numenor. But still, uh, carrying a you know an evergreen, um, 
an evergreen with you. Maybe tells you there's humans stowing away on board. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Trifle, you know, the the Oyelase was definitely evergreen. Um, and uh, it's, um, you can read about the Oyelase tradition in, I think I'm saying the name right, in um, uh, Aldarion and Arendis, which everybody should read in preparation for the Amazon series. Oh. But I got, a, I got a big list. <laughs> yeah. Um, so trifle, where did you see a where did you see a bigger one, like a tree with of that same size but larger, outside of a pot maybe? Um, Was it up at the shrine? Yeah, I love. Are we following this guy? Where Wait, is it? Which one? Who? Where are, are we, we following? I don't know. Uh, ran are into an NPC. Somebody? Now I don't know. Okay. All right, well, let's look to... around. Maybe we'll see some more of those. All right. The other thing is, maybe they just like the soil in the pot better than the soil out here. Well, it's possible. Well, th- actually, I just remembered. You know where we see pine trees up here is up, uh, up in the cold mountains. That's the only place we see pine trees growing in the ground. Maybe they just don't naturally grow in the ground here. These are right. Well, but these aren't exactly pines, though. Okay. It's not a pine. All right. Well, admittedly, my graphics are pretty low, so. Yeah. But the the bark texture looks like the pine texture. It looks more like a... Cedar? Maybe. I don't know. Spruce, perhaps? Of course, um, they brought forth juniper berries, the juniper bushes. <laughs> right. Anyway, okay. Bigger picture here. So, the bigger picture is this is one of those towers. Now, this is like the towers we've seen in other places, like in the river, right? Uh huh. This is like the one that's in the river. What are these towers meant to do? They're doorways. You can go up them. Though they're so narrow, it looks like they must have a lift inside them, or possibly just really, really narrow. Uh, but the top is like that tower, right? Isn't it shaped like that? Yes, it is. It's shaped yeah, yeah. just like the tower on the cliff across the way, right? Mm-hmm. And the tower up on the other cliff down there. And like the one that was in the middle of the river that we saw around the corner there, you can just see it sticking up yeah, like- there. Minaret shaped. Yeah, we've got these minarets all over the place, mm-hmm. which kind of are like lookouts. But let's face it, this is super inefficient for lookout towers. They can't just be a series of strategically placed lookout towers. There's another one. Look at that. Two of them practically on top of each other right there, right? So these are not yeah. strategically, this can't be strategically placed watchtowers. They have to be like, recreational towers right you'd think right yeah i think so maybe they just like being up high and looking around you know well that's what i'm thinking right this like so if they're not functional watchtowers and there's way too many of them to really justify that you would have to think therefore that they must be as I say, recreational. Like this is how, like, this is a Sit- 
a home city or? full of space needles yeah i mean Just it's a, it's like can. a this these are like like you know these are elvish flats except they're not flat they're pointy um right i mean like this is a a residence or a you know i don't know what like it maybe an elvish airbnb i'm not sure like do you stay in these towers <laughs> while you're well, in you Calendine can't live in these trees going west these trees aren't big enough to live in. Maybe it's sort of um, hearkening back to that. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, Forthalus points out that elves do seem to like heights, you know, like like the flats in Lothlorien. Uh, so maybe that's where the bedrooms go. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. Kind of, that's kind of what I'm imagining here, that these are these are places where you, where you live or stay. Yeah, exactly. So they their their buildings are all tending towards towers. And we saw a tendency towards towers. Here's another one. Right. Big old tower. Look yeah. at the windows, the, the building that we're right under here. I don't even know what this is, but the uh, the tower up there. Look at those fancy windows all around. Right. You're going to have this circular chamber at the top, which is like super fancy. And it has all of this like crazy lighting from all of the windows. Uh, some Little which are partially tinted. In there. Yeah. yeah. All the way yeah. around. So that's it's going to be this like really crazy beautiful easy to see out of but beautiful colored light kind of room uh up there at the top of this tower in the middle of this building um i don't know if that's the bedroom up there but uh well also consider them kind of like widow's walks how many of these people have people going off in boats or coming back well, fewer coming back, presumably. Uh, well, there's merchants and fishermen, too. Oh, yes, that's true. Let's not discount them. This is still a seafaring town, even if not all of them come back. Yeah. yeah. The ones who live in these towers are not the ones who are planning on leaving anytime soon, unless it's like a hotel or something. Well, that's what I'm thinking. Like, on your way out of Rivendell, or uh, Rivendell, on your way out of Middle Earth, right, as you're, like, pausing here, then you, you know... You might hang out here for a while. I mean, you know, like a century is kind of like a long weekend for an elf, right? So you can you can stay here for a while. Um, the last holy truck stop. Exactly. What's this? Uh, what's this building? Do we know what this building is? Can you go uh, into this building? Is this building labeled? Alien. No, it looks pretty big. Actually, I think this was part of the scholars' archive in the. No, that's up the hill. Never mind. That's up the hill. It looks like some sort of big library or archive, though. Some sort of big government building. It's the biggest building down closest to the docks. Maybe it's where the shipping charters are all, you know, managed and stuff. We can't go in, right? Oh, I looked up the shape of the fronds of the trees in the pots. It's cedar. It's cedar. It is cedar. Really? Uh Uh-huh. I have a whole bunch in my yard. Okay. Okay, so these are potted cedars all over the place. I could, I could, I could, I could live with that. It is almost like a custom house. Yeah, it is. The cedars of Lebanon. Anyway, yeah. um, Fourth Thoughtless, it is like an Elvish customs house. That's what it makes me think of too. Down here by the docks, though. Interestingly, I mean, I guess there's this walkway where we just were on the backside, which leads up, and there's a door over here, but. Yeah, see, There's everything m- about this town is observing. <laughs> this yeah. observation deck, observation towers. If you come in, so like if this is where the fishing comes in, right? And over there is where the merchants go out, where the dwarf is pacing back and forth. Um, yep. 
And the second one with the potted cedars is where people have packed their cedars for their next trip out to depart to the Grey Havens. So if you're over here, this building is super inconvenient for a customs house. Like, there's no door that faces it. Like, the doors all face away from the docks, one around the back and the other facing up the hill. Um, yeah, you almost think the customs officer is just going to stand out front and then you could, you go into the building if there's a problem, maybe. Right. <laughs> but I mean, maybe the, it just houses records, houses records of coming and going and manifests. And it faces the rest of the town up the hill. Like, this is obviously the front, right? It's got its back yeah. to the water. So it's down closest to the water, but it's got its back to it. And so, therefore, I don't think it's a customs house, besides which... Would elves have a customs house? Dwarves totally would. They'd be into that. Oh, yeah. They would totally be into that, but I'm not sure that elves would. They trade, we know that. Um, But... What would be the purpose of a customs house for elves? Yeah, well, I mean, normally it's for tax collecting, right? I mean, that's the point yeah. of a customs house. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, it's not keeping a very watchful eye on the dock. Yeah. Yeah, maybe that's what I think maybe probably. Or administration. Yeah, maybe it's ceremonial. Maybe that big tower with the really fancy room on top. Well, if we follow this path up here, we could see something that might be ceremonial for. I believe. Let's see. Hang on. I'm running into a post. I'm all stuck here. Okay. Stuck and <laughs> lagging. All right. Hey, let's head up the hill here. Yeah. And then we'll look, look down the river. beautiful purple lanterns again. Ah, yep. the purple lanterns. All right. Hang on. I want to look at the house from here. Okay. When twilight was a purpling. Oh, that fancy room on top of I really want to go into that room now. I really want to see out those windows, see what it would look like from there. Yeah, I bet that'd be really awesome. Come on, Standing Stone people. Is that too much to ask? Can we get inside that big (laughs) window? Just an instance? Just one. one. You don't have to open up the house and let us go up the stairs. Just, um, just, just. You know, let us click on something. I don't think we're ever going to get a view out of a window. (laughs) Oh, you know, be just like you get the views off the watchtowers in Rohan. Surely we could do that. We get the views. You can even get views in, uh, what's it called? In Illuminous. You can see views out the windows of uh, the 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 throne room. Oh, yeah. We can totally get views out the windows. Sorry, I haven't quite got up to those high levels quite as often as I'd like to. So Make it happen. Make it happen. Okay. Anyway. Um, but so yeah, up the hill here, we got our little so place got of worship. archway, which, okay. All right. So we're up here. And we've got a ruined tower. Yep. Why is our tower ruined? It, I don't know. There's ooh, part of it down there. There's part of it down there. Next to the shipwreck that's far away. Yeah. Yeah, Don't fall. We're not getting you back for the rest of the stream. (laughs) What is up with this tower, though? There's more ruined towers up up that way that we can inspect. Oh, I see a ruin on the hill. 
Oh, we've got to check out that ruin. This that tower. This doesn't fit. This is a. I mean, look at this tower and look at all the other towers. We've got oodles of towers in this town, right? This town is obsessed with towers, and there's not a one of them that looks like this. Look at it made of plain gray stone, overgrown with, like, moss and lichen and stuff, and whatever. Like, that could happen to any tower. But not to mention, of course, none of the rest of them are like that. Of course, none of the rest of them are ruined. But none of them that look implies like this. That, none of them are made that of implies stone. That it has nothing to do with the, the... They didn't have the desire to fix it. They just didn't have the ability. Maybe it's on bad ground now. Maybe it's shifting too much. Or it's going to fall. <laughs> into the channel edith aldora says it fell over out of embarrassment um it certainly looks like it's it is at least a different era of the town by at least i mean or possibly built by somebody else entirely did somebody live here before the elves came and decide i mean that always seems a little bit risky i mean you kind of assume that the firstborn have been here first but Maybe they weren't here first. The, the um, tiers on the side, they're vastly different from the, yeah. the sort of vaults that we get on the Absolutely. bottom of the album. I mean, everything about the shape of this tower, the materials with which this tower is made, the clumsy design, the plainness of it, of most but of it anyway. Got, the top is still much still got these prettier. sort of gold, these gold things, the, the gold trim being sh- shot through it, though. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I try if I agree. No windows, too. Look at that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you can't yeah. even see on the second floor. The bit that is fallen into the river, which uh-huh. is the fanciest bit of the tower, clearly. Yes. Um, looks look at all the elvish. curly cues. Yeah, the curly yeah, cues. Those are, those are very elvish looking. When I look at the top of that tower, I have a hard time believing that anybody other than elves made that tower. Uh-huh. Um. Yeah, we're just going to have to check out the other rooms in Kalandam and compare. Yeah, see if we can find any other examples of that. Because I think we clearly have... I mean, I assuming this is made by elves, which it definitely does not look dwarvish, doesn't have the marks of dwarvish architecture. Oh, no, no, no. Um, hobbits are obviously not going to make a tower like this. That's completely <laughs> ridiculous. Um, and we don't know any humans here in this area. Um, Amathorn, I agree. It is logically possible that this tower was built by somebody else, and then the elves kind of tried to gussy it up when they got here, right? And we're like, you know what? This this tower Burnt is down, pretty fell lame. over, sank into the channel. It needs <laughs> some filigree work. Maybe if with some filigree work, it'll be good. And then they were like, you know what? It's not enough. Uh, let's Slap just some gold on decay. it. Yeah. Um, it's possible. I still doubt it. So, okay. So we would have a sort of now. Oh, and by the way, look at the positioning of this tower, right? This could have been just a functional watchtower, right? Oh yeah. Positioned right here by the entrance from the top of that tower. You'd be able to see over that shoulder of the hill. So you'd be able to see not only this channel, but around the corner and the path of the rest of the, and the rest of the river. Right. Maybe so, a beacon. Could be a beacon, uh, could be a lighthouse, probably not a lighthouse, uh, but could be, uh, certainly could be a lookout tower. By the look of the wrecked ship over there, maybe a lighthouse is necessary around here. Well, you know, that does, I mean, there are some rocks here, but um, 
But anyway, Watchtower, Lighthouse, whatever it was, is in a really good position. You can see from there, the top of that tower, you could see all the way up the river for quite a ways. And you uh-huh. could see around this corner and everything. So, yeah, it would be a good watchtower position. So much more functional than the other towers, which seem to be, as we suggested, more recreational because too numerous to be merely watchtowers. Um, so whoever it was came to build this first and built this before the rest of the town was built. They were like, we need a watchtower. So they were interested in the river, either defending it against people coming up or wanting to be on the alert anyway for people coming up, or they were navigating the river. They were people who were focused on the river alone and not on this place. Like this was not yet a harbor. They weren't really bothered about living here. What is up stream from here? Uh, upstream from here, up towards Anuminous, doesn't connect to Lake Evendim, but comes near it, and then up to That's the mountains near Forak Hill. I don't see... Um, I mean, as you can see from the big map, we are close to the... This is close to where the river narrows um, from, you know, the gulf into, mm-hmm. a, into a river. Um, anyway, um... Well, we will we will consider this mystery as we move forward in Kellendom. Let us consider the ship then for a moment. Is that a wreck? I see people were asking that. I don't think it's a wreck. It's you think they're of, building it? Well, no, I think it's it's not got sails, admittedly, and it's got a whole bunch of strange rigging, which I don't understand, but then again, I'm not an elf, so maybe I wouldn't. Um <laughs> But it it looks like it's floating, right? I mean, I can see the rudder, and I can see... It it looks really big for something this shallow. Um, It's got to be scraping its barnacles off on the bottom of that river. Probably. Uh, But... I don't know. It doesn't look like it's... It doesn't look wrecked. It's not capsized. It's not, um, you know, broken on the rocks or anything like that. Yeah, it looks more broken from a from a more of a distance. From here, you can see it actually is in the water, but it doesn't look ship shape. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was the fact that it not only does not have its sails unfurled, but doesn't appear to have sails at all. Um, is uh, weird. It's also right next to those really big rocks. Yeah. I think that's what it was. I think when I saw it from a distance, it looked like it was up on those rocks. Right, exactly. No, from down uh, by the back door of that that building down there, um, it uh, it did look like a shipwreck from there. I saw it vaguely in the distance from there. Um, Don't know how much closer we can get. And it would be weird. Sorry, excuse me, getting late. It would be yeah. weird to um uh Well I've now entered a new section. It it looks like it almost looks like a ship in a bottle where you're about to you know take a hook and raise the sails, but they only got about halfway. I don't think those masts are broken. I think they're just weird. 
they just look collapsed a little, you know. They look collapsible, but they don't necessarily. <laughs> I'm not convinced that they're. Um, yeah. Looks more like a canopy than a sail. Like it'd be something you keep the sun off. Yeah, of like a not... tarp. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. Um, sail in the rain. Yeah. See, now Luke is suggesting that they maybe have to. Because, you know, again, as we saw, Kellendim is right here at the, the place where the Gulf comes to the river. Maybe this curve is meant to be, you know, where the Gulf comes in and finally narrows down. So it's river from here, like from this spot. Uh-huh. Um, so that that, by those rocks there, is all the further that large ships can come up. Oh, so they take a rowboat to the docks. Yes, so so they would. Yes, they would need to be ferried. Yes, from that the docks does make sense. In, in in a river-going yeah. ship. And and it did occur to me, you know, considering how they're getting to Valinor, that ship might be a weird shape for a reason. Maybe it needs to be some sort of. Maybe it needs to break something with a pointed bow that goes into a conical shape, or maybe it has to lose its back part with its energy blasts or something. I don't know. (laughs) Right. I got three part rockets on the brain. Sorry. (laughs) No, I hear that. I hear that. Um, It is possible. It is possible. It is also possible that some people are suggesting that it would be covered by a canopy, that those would not be sails, but this, this could actually be an Elvish river barge. Mm -hmm. Um, which would then be just towed, essentially, instead of being uh, um, like rowed or towed. Yeah. Instead of being sailed. Um, I don't know why it would need quite so much mast work there if it were not going to be sailed at all. But I don't understand. Kierden, explain yourself. Yeah, they look weird. But again, not an elf. Kierden presumably knows what he's doing. Um been Most... making boats thousands of years longer than you have, and he <laughs> yeah. thinks he knows what he's about. Exactly. So, yep. All right. Um, so, yeah, you can't swim to it, right? No, 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 no. Oh, well. All right. Well, I think I'm going to go with it's that they ferry folks out from the docks to there. I think I like that. Okay. Yeah. I like that too. I think that I like that. Okay. All right. I'm actually quite happy to know there's not just the ship moldering out there. Yeah, no, it's not a shipwreck. (laughs) That would be rather a blight on the Elvish Harbor here. Okay. Yeah. So I think we're going to sign off here. We, we covered a lot. We covered like a building and a half and we discovered a, you know, a mystery. We have an architectural mystery to solve now. We have the yep. we have we have the we we have the history of Kellendim to try to figure out based on the archaeological evidence. So Just we have thought we work... were done with ruins. Exactly. <laughs> we have our work cut out for us here. I, I was I had forgotten that there were ruins here, right? That's kind of I, I forgot they were different than these buildings. Yeah, I know. No, I never noticed that before. So, that. Lots more to discover. So uh, we will return to this next week. Thanks, everybody. Uh, good night, and I will see you guys next Tuesday. Bye now. Bye. Thanks for joining me on this epic exploration of The Lord of the Rings and of Standing Stone's video adaptation of Tolkien's story. If you are having even half the fun I'm having on this journey, I hope you will consider supporting the project by donating at signumuniversity.org fund.